Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to The Rambling Intellect. I am your host, John DeBerry, and again, welcome to the debut episode of this podcast, The Rambling Intellect. So, you might be fair to ask, why do we need another podcast? And that's a good question. For lack of a better way of putting it, this podcast is all about things that piss me off. It's a place for me to vent, to rant, and also to maybe share a few things with you about things that are going on in the world. I call it the rambling intellect because a lot of podcasts, as you probably know, tend to focus on one, two subject areas. And we're going to be a little bit different. This will cover a wide variety of topics from just general everyday things that I find crazy or just weird to some more heavily political issues that I don't really think the voice of people who think like I do is being expressed. Um, So that's sort of what we're here, what this is all about, and I'd like to welcome you to this first episode to start this journey with me. Uh, I am a hobby podcaster. This is the first time I've done one of these, so I can't in any way assume this will be perfect. I will never certainly be a little bit of flubs here and there, but I will do my best to put on a good show and hopefully to give you good information. So I wanted to start off talking today about something that really just annoys me to no end, and uh, that is buying shoes. You probably didn't see that one coming, I assume, but that's okay. Why do buying shoes annoy me so much? Well, I wear a size 14 and shoe shopping if you were a size 14 or higher is an absolute nightmare. Thank God that things such as Zillow have come about where we can actually go out and pick these but for years it wasn't ever an issue and this has always been something that's really annoyed me. And here's the backstory: um, probably starting in either 5th or 6th grade, I moved from a size 12 into a size 13. And that shift at the time was absolutely a nightmare. I went from being able to go into stores and have a variety of shoes shoes to pick from to going in and essentially, you don't, see when you have a bigger size foot, you don't actually get to pick out a shoe. You, know, you walk into Foot Locker or different shoe stores and there's all these models all over the wall. You don't get to pick. Instead, what you do is you wave down a clerk and you go, excuse me, what do you have in a size 14? Okay, or back then a size 13. And then they will typically bring out the one or two shoes they actually have in your size. And Again, why this is so annoying is, like I said, I was in a size 12, in either 5th or 6th grade, I bumped up to a size 13, and it was hell. And then for one shining moment, I remember this in my 8th grade year, a lot of shoe stores decided to start carrying 13s. And there was one pair, I was in, I believe, either late 7th or early 8th grade, for one pair of shoes, I got to go in, and I asked my standard question, well, what do you have in a 13? And they actually said pretty much everything in this section. There was like 20 different shoes to choose from. And I was ecstatic. I actually got to pick a pair, try a few on. It was awesome. And I had this one pair. And then over that next summer, my foot grew and I was in a 14. 
and it's back to the same thing ever since. This total inability to damn near find anything that fits. And it really, and if you don't have this problem, if you don't have a larger foot, you might not see what the issue is. But for those of you out there that are in the Bigfoot Club like me, we can testify as to how frustrating it is. I will never forget the first time after my wife and I got married, I needed a pair of boots, hiking boots. We were uh, in graduate school living in Wyoming at the time, and I needed a pair of like hiking boots for the colder weather. And she, I remember her telling me, well, let's just go get some shoes. It shouldn't be a problem. We'll just run down to the store. And I looked at her, and I was like, you really don't have a clue how hard this is going to be, do you? And in hindsight, she has told me I really had no clue. So I remember we hopped in the car, we went down, and she starts looking at all the various shoes and boots on the rack and going, uh, do you like these, hun? Do you like these, hun? And then finally I'm like, you don't understand. You can't do this. And she's like, what do you mean? And I flagged down one of the clerks and I said, uh, what do you have in a size 14? And I remember he looked at me and my wife, whose name is Angie, is standing next to me and he goes, give me a second. And Angie looks at me and is like, what's the problem? I go, just wait and see. So he goes back in the back and he disappears for like 15, 20 minutes. And he finally comes out with these two pair of shoes. And as normal, what tends to be the trend, these were two of the most but ugly pairs of shoes you have ever seen. You know, find somebody that has a size 14 or 15 and they will tell you about the joy of needing a pair of shoes and asking what they have in a 14 and your options being a pair of orthopedic solid shoes or some pair of usually Brooks running shoes that look like the toxic oil spill has mutated them somehow because of the color choices. And I just never forget Angie finally looked at the clerk and was like, this is it? This is all you have out of all these? And the guy was like, yep. And so, anyway, so it's been this big, long thing. And it was just brought up to me again this weekend how much of a pain in the ass this is. Because I'm out, and we're shopping, and we're going to a local store here. And they have a gigantic shoe selection. And again, I'm looking and looking at all the various shoes they have. And the only two things they have in my size, I kid you not, were a pair of white Reebok, like, foot support orthodontic, not orthodontic, it's a mouth, I can't remember the term. Orthopedic. There we go. Orthopedic shoes that you know that people in retirement homes wear, or this other pair of Adidas. And you might be thinking, oh well, Adidas, that's not bad. You didn't see these things. These shoes, they were like a running athletic shoe. They looked like a bumblebee had had sex with a black cow, and the leather for this shoe was the mutated result. I remember looking at them going, who in the heck would wear these things? These are atrocious looking. And if you want to see a picture of them, <clears throat> I took a photo and posted it on uh, the Instagram for the show. Just, just uh, search Rambling Intellect on Instagram and you'll find it. And they're just horrible. And I think this just illustrates this point. So to anybody out there who is in the shoe business, owns a shoe store, I'd like to give you a little bit of free advice. Carry large sizes. Okay, and carry larger sizes in good name brands that look normal, for Christ's sake. Okay, those of us with big feet, we understand that selection will be limited. We've been used to that our entire lives. Okay, we don't expect to have 20 pairs. 
But three, four is like a holiday for us. I mean, it's like opening a Christmas present and it being the thing you wanted the most from Santa Claus. It's just an ecstatically orgasmic feeling. So we understand there's not going to be a lot, but at least carry three or four of them. And I'll tell you another thing. This will be very good for your business because people with big feet, like myself, when we find a store that carries shoes in a variety of styles in our size, number one, we tell everybody we know who has big feet about that store. We are very, very vocal and share that knowledge all over the place when we find a store that carries our size. Then the second thing is we are exceptionally loyal. If I know that your store is going to carry, have a selection in my size, I will buy every single pair of shoes I get from your store. I won't even go other places and look because I know 90% of the time, if I go someplace else and look, it's just going to be wasting time because they'll have the, you know, white orthopedic shoes or the mutated looking ones. So if you know somebody that has a large foot, if you know somebody that wears big feet, or if you do, give me a holler. Let us know and spread the word that you really need to start carrying these bigger sizes because it is just so frustrating. I can't tell you how many times I've gone to a store with my wife and I've looked and I've asked a clerk, do you carry a size 14? And the very quick answer is no. And that, that sharp way they always say no usually makes a little giggle like <laughs> no. It just pisses me the fuck off. Because honestly, I'll tell you what it says to those of us with big feet. It essentially says... I don't want you as a customer. It's like recognizing I understand that people with your shoe size exist, but I don't want your money. I don't value you enough as a customer to even bother carrying your size. And there's a lot of stores out there that, that do not carry anything higher than a 13. And it's just, it, it drives me crazy when that happens. So, like I said, some part of this show is just me going to rant on something that really ticks me off. And this just happened last week, so I felt like I had to rant about this a bit. So that's the rant for this one. Um, now, the second thing I wanted to talk about today is a news that's been, is an issue, sorry, that's been a lot in the news lately. And it's the healthcare debate. Now, in my everyday life, my day job, I am a teacher. I teach at a community college where I live. And uh, I, admittedly, I teach uh, public speaking. I also teach argumentation and debate. So one of the things that I tend to focus on a lot is public events, current events in my personal life, because I need to know that for coaching the speech and debate team. But also, it's just something I've always been interested in. And I tell you what, one of the things that annoys me to no end, because I do watch so much politics and news shows, is stupid arguments. Arguments that if you take half a nanosecond to actually think about are some of the dumbest things in the world. They don't hold up to two cents of actual logic and reasoning. But I'm amazed at how they tend to proliferate amongst all these different people. And, and I'll give you a great example of what I'm talking about. Some of you may remember several years ago, there was all this debate about whether or not Barack Obama was a U.S. citizen. 
and there's all this hubbub like, you know, was he born in Kenya and whatnot? And it drove me absolutely nuts. And that, to me, it somewhat illustrates one of the problems with a lot of people in the United States is that they don't know what the rules are. I always tell my students, you don't know what you don't know. You may think that what you know is truth and accurate, but it's just not because nobody ever bothers to tell you. Okay, and I'll give you a, an example here. Okay, it was all this like he was born in Kenya and all this and all that. I would ask you a simple question: How many different types of citizens are there in the United States? And the simple answer: There's two. Okay, the first one is called naturalized. Now that's when you were born in another country. You weren't a U.S. citizen. You came over to the United States, whether on a work visa, school visa, immigrated the full way, whatever. And then you came over and then you went through the process of getting the various visas, the various clearances, and then you took the test and then you became an American citizen later in life. People like, for example, Arnold Schwarzenegger is a naturalized citizen. The second type is natural born. Okay. Now, natural born, to be blunt about it, means that from the moment you popped out of your mama, you had U.S. citizenship. And I remember asking my classes and saying, all right, how do you become a natural born citizen? And the vast majority of them all said, well, you have to be born in the United States. Now, that is half true. Okay. Yes, if you are born in the geographical boundaries of any of the 50 states, you are a natural born citizen. Okay, you can also have what's called dual citizen, dual citizenship, sorry. And that's if, let's say, you are a, uh, your parents were both citizens of Germany, but you, for some fluke, they happened to be here and you were born in the United States, you would have dual citizenship, both United States and German citizenship. Uh, this happened with my, with my wife. Her father was in the army and she was actually born in Germany. So she had dual citizenship. German and American and I think at some point I think around 13 or so she had to give up one of them and she of course gave up her German citizenship so where am I going with all this like I said that's half of the of what a natural born citizen is the other half and this tends to be the half that people don't know about is if 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 one of your parents is a US citizen regardless if they are natural born or naturalized doesn't matter if one of your parents is a US citizen it does not matter where you are born you have natural born citizenship okay and this isn't rocket science this isn't some hidden secret in some book you know stuck in a library in Westeros or something like that this is just this is just basic law and, and you saw this come up recently because there, when, if you remember in the last presidential election, the one when Donald Trump eventually won, Ted Cruz was one of the Republican candidates, and Ted Cruz was born in Canada. Okay, but he could run because he had natural-born citizenship because I believe it was his father was a U.S. citizen. So even though his mother was not a U.S. citizen and he was born in Canada, the fact because his father was a U.S. citizen, he had natural-born citizenship. So how does this relate to Barack Obama? Well... It is beyond dispute that Barack Obama's mama was a U.S. citizen until the day she died. She was born and raised in Wichita, Kansas. Okay, that's 
undisputable. So think about that. One of his parents was a U.S. citizen. I don't care where he was born. So I do not care if he was born in the middle of the Serengeti in a grass hut suckling on a zebra. He is a natural-born U.S. citizen. And this is one of these examples of arguments that just drove me crazy because I, I wanted somebody to just sit these people down and spend five minutes explaining to them, here's why you're wrong. Because the whole argument tended to be on, is there evidence of this, evidence of that? It doesn't matter. Mom was a U.S. citizen. He is a U.S. citizen. Works that way. So how's this get us back to health care? Well, as you may have learned from the news, that right now the Republicans are trying to put together their own bill and pass it through Congress and the Senate. Trump has already said he will sign it, and it's causing lots of issues and lots of problems. They keep hitting snags and various Republicans um, not wanting to sign on to the bill for, you know, wide variety of reasons most democrats are saying they're not going to sign it at all you know big surprise there and to me i think this just represents a fundamental problem people don't they don't think i find this so often to be the case republicans and democrats they don't tend to think things through okay like one of the things we often talk about in speech and debate when making an argument is any argument has three components okay it has a claim it has a warrant and it has an impact okay those are the three vital components of any argument now the claim is the general argument you're making okay whatever that may be gun control is wrong abortion is immoral whatever the warrant is the evidence you have to support that claim okay whether that's a study, a quote from somebody who's viewed as credible, a lot of examples, whatever. And then lastly, you have the impact. This is the so what. Okay, if, if we don't do what I say, what bad things will happen? Okay, so I, I hear these arguments all the time dealing with healthcare that Obamacare is failing and we got to bail it out and this, that, and the other. And I just don't see people thinking these things through to some logical which I don't think are very hard logical conclusions. And, and I'll start with the beginning. Okay, so recently, Trump came out and said that what he thinks the Republicans ought to do is just repeal Obamacare, and then they'll figure out something to replace it in the future. This is a horrible idea. Okay, why is this a horrible idea? Well, for a couple of reasons. One, what happens if we repeal Obamacare? we go back to how things were before it was put into place. What does that mean? Well, that means lifetime caps on payments go into effect. That means pre-existing conditions go into effect. That means insurance companies can kick people off insurance if they don't think it is in their best interest to keep them on. They think it's just too they're going to be too expensive. They can deny them coverage, which they can't do now. And so my question always is, if we just straight up repeal Obamacare, there's not there wouldn't be any regulations on these type of things. So what, for example, would stop your insurance company from saying, okay, um, we used to not cover these things, uh, and so we're not anymore. You know, we used to not cover, you know, this is a dumb example, but we used to not cover foot surgery, um, but we had to under Obamacare. Now that that's out, we're no longer going to cover foot surgery. And what would that mean if you were right in the middle of the process of getting it done? You just have to stop. What if you just recently had it done, but they hadn't processed the claim yet? Could they just 
deny it at that point, even though you were told it would be covered? How many people would they come back and all of a sudden start dropping lifetime limits down to try to make up any money they, they viewed that they lost? It's just a horrible idea. And you see how long it took to pass Obamacare. You know, he had to have a supermajority in both the Congress and the Senate, and it took all this political will and capital to get it passed. I mean, do you really think they're going to come back with something in six months to fix it? I, I don't think so. But I think the big problem with this whole debate is that we tend to be focusing on the wrong thing. And I'll, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. Uh, like many of you, I suppose, I'm a fan of podcasts. I listen to several of them. And one I like to listen to a lot is Dan Carlin. Uh, some of you may know him. He has one called Hardcore History. He has another one named called, called Common Sense. And I remember I was listening to one on his, on his Common Sense show, and he was talking about health care. And he said something that just really struck me as wise. And that was the problem with this debate is everybody is focusing on the wrong thing. And that we keep talking about and thinking about how to get people insurance when what we need to be thinking about is how to get them health care. Because getting people insurance and getting people health care is not the same thing. You want to give, I could wake up tomorrow and if I was a policy leader and I wanted to give people insurance, I can get everybody insurance in the country. I could. You want a policy for a dollar? Awesome. It'll have a $20,000 deductible. After that, it'll be an 80-20 where we pay 20 and you pay 80 and I'll put a lifetime cap on it of $5,000. You can have that policy for 10 bucks. You'd have insurance, but is it really going to get you health care? And the answer is no. Okay. So it's not about getting health care. It's not about getting insurance. Excuse me. It's about getting people health care. And this is, this is one of the fundamental things that I disagree with on with a lot of the arguments I'm hearing. And that is I keep hearing all these different things about how to make it work in the for-profit system. And I fundamentally don't believe that healthcare works in a for-profit system. Now, before you start calling me, you know, socialist and a communist and all this crazy stuff, for the vast majority of things, I think the free market is great. Okay, it works well. You know, the whole invisible hand, supply and demand curve, all that jazz, it works fantastic. But healthcare is different. Okay. And the reason why it is different, and this is going to sound very academic y, and I'll explain it in just a second, is the nature of healthcare. If you look at healthcare as a product, okay, like a car or macaroni and cheese or whatever, the nature of healthcare as a product. And my belief fundamentally skews the invisible hand, you know, Adam Smith's invisible hand of free market, so that the free market and the supply and demand curve can't self-regulate, and that supply and demand curve gets all out of whack. And that becomes the problem. Now, some of you might be going, uh, invisible hand, what, what's this all mean? So let me, let me explain this to you. All right, let me break this down. Okay, so two fundamental things that you need to keep in mind to understand kind of where I'm going here. Okay, first off, the supply and demand curve. Okay, the supply and demand curve generally says that the more of a product there is, the less expensive it is. And the lesser the product is, the, the fewer of them there is, the higher the price is. When you take into account 
quality. Okay, and they call it a curve because if you cut like if you cut a circle in half and you put it on a graph, it sort of looks like that. It starts low, then goes up high, then goes back down. Okay. Now on the so if you look at it going from left to right, on the left hand side where it's low there, that's a situation where the price is low and demand is also low, usually because of a perception of quality. Okay. There is this idea that if certain products are priced at a certain amount and that amount is very low, that is indicative of low quality. You know, for example, you go to a major store like Walmart or Kmart and you see a pair of pliers in a bin for like 50 cents. What's the likelihood that pair of pliers is going to last a long time? You know, if you worked in construction, is that a pair of pliers you would want to take to the job site? Probably not. But if all you're looking for is a pair of, you know, emergency pliers, you'll, you'll pick one up. And then from there, you get to your better brands like Black & Decker, Mitre, and all those. And the price goes to go up, but people buy more of them because there's that perception of higher quality. But then as the price continues to go up, then it becomes more of a luxury item, and then the demand of it goes down. Okay. Uh, another great example of this, and my first job out of college was selling cars, and I think cars are a good example of this. How much life would you say is in a $200 car? The price is good, but who's going to buy a $200 car? Well, maybe people who are poor, maybe something for a first kid, but you don't expect that to last five, six, seven years. Okay, my wife and I are buying a, or in a car, sorry, not buying, <clears throat> my car now is not that expensive of a car. Excuse me, I had to take a drink. Um, you know, we bought it for just a couple of grand, but it was meant to be a stopgap. Okay, we bought this car because the one I was in before got wrecked and we just needed something to get us six, seven months so we could save up a down payment. We're not expecting it to last long. But there is still that market. And then you get into your other vehicles where I quality is assumed to get higher people tend to buy more of them like your Fords, Toyotas, Hondas, Nissans, all that jazz but then as you get to your upper level luxury vehicles like Bentley, Tesla they don't sell as many because the price is so high okay and they price them that high to, so they can still make a profit when they're selling far less of them I mean if you look at for example how many Bentleys or Ferraris are sold every year compared to Toyotas Toyota sells a whole lot more cars, but the higher-end models are still profitable because they charge so much for them, <clears throat> okay? So that's the supply and demand curve. Now, the thing that makes this work is Adam Smith called it the invisible hand, and that's that process by which people are, that's, uh, that psychological process by which people will not buy a certain type of car because they think it's crap, and then they'll be willing to pay a little bit more for quality and they'll pay a little bit more for more quality. And then once you start to get really expensive, they naturally start backing away from them, okay? Because they can't afford them except for those luxury folks. So that's that process by which people do that. That's called the invisible hand, all right? If there's ever an economics professor listening to this, he's probably going to blow, he or she will probably blow a fuse, but that's the general gist of it. So why do I think healthcare fundamentally skews this? One of the things that makes the invisible hand work, it's one of the key parts of the invisible hand functioning, is the ability of the customer to say no and just walk away and not purchase.
okay? Maybe because it's too high at the time, maybe they want to wait longer and think about it, any number of reasons, okay? The ability of the customer to say no and walk away is one of the big things that helps the supply and demand curve work with the invisible hand, okay? A great example, again, um, is our video game systems like the PlayStation 4. How many of you yourself or know somebody who, when PlayStation or Nintendo or Xbox comes out with a new system, immediately says, I'm going to wait a year, year and a half till they drop the price? Because we know that will happen. Okay. And we're fine doing that with a video game system because, and here's the thing, it's not life or death. Which brings me to this point. In healthcare, do you really have the ability to say no and walk away? And the answer really for most of us is no, we don't. Okay, if you're diagnosed with cancer or one of your kids is diagnosed with cancer or a parent's diagnosed with cancer, do you are you going to go into a doctor's office and the doctor says, well, yes, we have this treatment for this type of cancer. It's going to run about $600,000. Can you respond to the doctor and say, all right, doc, I'll give you 100 bucks." No, the doctor's not going to negotiate and because the doctor has no reason to negotiate. Here's the price. You pay it or don't. And why doesn't the doctor have to negotiate? Because what's the alternative? The alternative is you die. And that's the key thing that makes the invisible hand not work. People can't just say no and walk away. I mean, they theoretically could, but the option there is death. So how many people are going to go, well, you know, it's too expensive. I'd rather just die. Not many. Do you have people like that? Yes, you do have some individuals because of an older age. Or, oh, you know, I've got this problem. I've lived a good life. I don't want to stress out my family. I'll just die peacefully. I'll just live out the rest of my time as best I can. You do see that. But no parent is going to say that to their eight-year-old if they have cancer. You're not going to sit your eight-year-old down and go, well, you see, Mike, um, you have cancer and we can't afford it, so we're just going to let you die. You're not going to do that. You wouldn't do that with your parents. And so what that does is it, one, creates a situation where insurance companies, this whole idea of bringing the price down where people can afford it, doesn't exist because people will pay to stay alive. And that unalternative, that inability to really walk away and say no on a regular basis is what fundamentally skews that supply and demand curve and why I don't think it works for healthcare. You know, I just fundamentally don't think it works because people can't walk away. Now, some may say, well, the free market would find a way to fix that. I No, I don't think it will because the whole point of the free market is to make money. And when your customer base literally has a choice between having your product and living or not and dying, who has the power in that relationship? The insurance company or the customer? See, like in a car... There's equal power. I want to buy this vehicle. You have it. But I don't have to buy that vehicle and be alive. I can go to a different dealership. I can choose to ride the bus. I can choose to ride a bike. I can go buy a motorcycle. I have all these options. But I don't have that with health care. You know, and it's simple. If you have strep throat, you either get the medicine to fix it or you're in a lot of pain. And, and here's the thing. And could potentially die. I mean, before... 
penicillin and whatnot, some of these simple diseases that we don't think about, like the strep throat and other things, they were lethal. You can die from strep throat if you don't get the medicine. So you see who has all the power in this relationship. It's not equally distributed. And that's why I don't think the free market works for healthcare. Again, it works great for other things, but not in healthcare. Now, I know somebody is saying, so you think we should have socialized medicine? Yeah, I do. I really think it's the best way to provide people health care, not insurance, because we're trying to get people to health care. And I know this idea of socialized medicine wigs some people out. It really doesn't for me. And I'll explain why. Uh, number one, I've had socialized medicine before. Now, it's not because I lived in Canada or any place in Europe. I was in the U.S. military. Okay, I volunteered for the Marines right out of high school, sir, four years. The military operates under socialized medicine. If I woke up and I was sick, I went to sick call. I got whatever I needed, medicine or whatnot, and that was it. And I went and I did it, I took the medicine, did whatever, and then I didn't know anything. Okay? Now, the benefit of that was if I got sick in any way, I didn't hesitate to go to sick call. Heck, half the time I remember one of my gunnery sergeant or my CO or XO making me go to sick call. Because they didn't want everybody else to get sick. So I didn't worry about going because I knew it would be fine. And, you know, and I had friends in the military who had to have surgery and they all came through fine. I think we put, we've demonized it to the point where we think all these crazy things about socialized medicine that are simply not true. And, you know, for example, some of the things I remember hearing, you know, we have the best health and, you know, we have the best health insurance in the world, best health care system in the world. Uh, no. Look at any measure, infant mortality, average lifespan, anything you want to look at. We are not first. Okay, we're usually ranked somewhere in the bottom teens. Now, admittedly, the, the one thing we do tend to lead the world on is cancer research. We are number one in that. But outside of that, we're not. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that America sucks far from it. I love this country. I, you know, I volunteer to defend it. We have some great things, but we also have problems. And you're not going to fix any of these problems by denying that they exist. And, you know, and I'll put this out here too. Just because somebody in another country has a good idea does not automatically mean it won't work in the United States. I'll talk about that more in depth another time. So, and I'll give you a great example where I don't see this logic coming to pass. Uh, Rand Paul, U.S. Senator from the state of Kentucky. I was watching him, and he was talking about free market and health care, and he used an example of how the free market could work to fix health care, and he brought up LASIK eye surgery. And he said, you know, it used to be really expensive, but now because of the free market, it's come down. But that's a horrible example, okay? Now, to be fair, he is right. Okay, when LASIK came out, geez, it was six, seven, ten thousand dollars an eye, somewhere in there. And now you can get it done for just a couple thousand. It has radically come down in price. But here's why that's not a good example. If you have vision problems, are your options being blind or get LASIK surgery? You either have to live your life as being blind or you have to fork out for LASIK surgery. And we all know the answer is no. There's all kinds of things. 
between being blind and LASIK surgery. You can get glasses, you can get contacts, and even within those options, there's all different types of levels. I mean, you could go to a place like Walmart's optometry and get those, get a pair of glasses that, when I was in the military, they used to give us these brown plastic frame glasses, and we always referred to them as BCDs, and that stood for birth control devices, because they made you look so ugly, nobody would want to be with you. And you could, if you had bad eyesight and you did not have a lot of money, you could go and get a very simple pair of plastic frames and the cheapest lenses you could, and you could see. They may be more prone to scratching. They probably wouldn't have any of sort of the automatic shading, you know, the tinted lenses things, but you could see. Same thing with contact lenses. There's more cheaper contact lenses and there's more experience. You don't have, sorry, more expensive ones. You don't have to buy one-time use dailies. You can buy the ones that you clean and so forth. So there's all these different levels in there. And then if you don't want all that, then you can look at LASIK. But you see, that makes LASIK not a good example because it's not I either have to be blind or get LASIK because there's all these other options in there. You don't really have those options in a lot of healthcare situations. If you need amoxicillin, if you need heart surgery, if you need chemotherapy, it's not, well, I could get chemotherapy or I could do this, I can do this. It's you need chemotherapy or you're going to die. And that's why I don't really think it works. And it just annoys me that so often that this is what we've thought about and this is what we've come to is this whole point of trying to, we just want to ignore some of these simple facts. You know, we are just about the only country in the entire Western world that has tried to make healthcare work through the for-profit system that we have. We're, we're just about it. I think we are it. Every other industrialized nation has gone through some sort of socialized medicine, a hybrid system, something. But we as a country, you know, we didn't ever set out to develop a healthcare system. It just kind of came about. You know, when people started getting insurance and then they started putting it with your job package to try to make you get more enticing for you to accept jobs. That's, we just kind of wound up here haphazardly. And I think we're living with the results of it now. So, I mean, that's my big thing I wanted to bring up today with this whole healthcare debate is to really think about, I mean, if you think I'm wrong, I'm more willing to hear your argument. But you got to explain to me how prices will come down when all the power is in the hands of the people who provide the care. And you may say, well, people just won't buy it. Yeah, they will, because the alternative is death. And that's where I'm at. So, so I'm just looking at my show notes. So it's the two big things I wanted to talk about today. And I want to thank you all for listening to our debut episode. I'm sure as I do this more often, I'll get better. We'll bring up some different topics. Um, if you would like to talk to me, I'm more than happy to hear from you. You can reach us via Gmail at rambling intellect all one word so rambling intellect at gmail.com you can also follow us follow us on instagram to search for rambling intellect or on twitter at rambling intel r-a-m-b-l-i-n-g-i-n-t-e-l so again thank you very much for listening we're letting the journey begin here today with this very first episode i thank you all for listening and paying attention and i will talk to you all again in about a week have a good day a good week and just remember, the world's a wilderness. Just your mind has got to keep rambling through it, and eventually you'll find your destination. Have a good day, y'all.